Welcome to Teeth and Titanium, a podcast about oral surgery, residency, and life. We would like to thank the Canadian Association of Oral and Maxillofacial Surgery for their continued support. All opinions expressed in this podcast by the hosts and their guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of the CAOMS. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for surgical decision making. All right, everybody, welcome to Teeth and Titanium. This is episode nine. We are in the new year. It's January 2021. Oscar, how is it going? Happy New Year. Honestly, it was as good as it could be for a New Year's and holiday celebration with this crazy year that we're living in. I was just more excited to be out of 2020 and into 2021. I think like you, Oscar, a lot of us uh, have been waiting to say goodbye to 2020. And we hope that, you know, 2021 will be a better year and hopefully everything will go well with the the vaccine rollout and COVID. But, you know, we're an anti-COVID podcast. We don't like to talk about that and get everyone's spirits down. That's why I'm just happy to be done in 2020. I wasn't saying why I was happy to be done in 2020. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right, let's move into some current events. So, Oscar, you know, as we just mentioned, we do want to avoid talking about, you know, the big bad wolf of 2020. Hmm. One thing I did want to touch on that is really relevant to myself and you and a bunch of the the listeners that are going to be going through this is we have started the vaccine rollout in the United States. I have received the first dose of the Pfizer vaccine. Nice. Um, by the time, you know, the listeners are listening to this, I probably will have received the second dose because it's, you know, it's a three weeks apart between yep. the two. So, yeah, honestly, in the U.S., it was for a healthcare worker anyways in Charlotte, super easy. You just go online, you sign up, you pick the time that you can go in, you get it done. It's really, really quick. That's but I've smooth. heard that in, in Canada, it's a little bit of a slower rollout is what I'm hearing. Yeah, so I would say, so I... I had the option to have the vaccine. And the reason I haven't had it yet is because they asked me to get clearance from my family physician because I have an anaphylactic allergy. So they're like, oh, just for documentation, they kind of want that on on record first. But I would have had the option. A bunch of the other partners that are hospital affiliated already have had the vaccine done here too. I would say it wasn't hard for us to get approved or to get the vaccine. But yes, if you look at the media and you look at the news, it looks like it's been a pretty slow rollout. Like they were holding vaccines back. Now that now they're ramping up again and like they're running out of vaccines. So I would say it's probably not been the most efficient compared to you guys. Okay. Yeah. I mean, hopefully they're able to figure out the supply issues soon and get that to everyone. And that's something we'll be able to track going forward. The next thing we want to talk about is, you know, this was finally we're here in January means halfway through the fellowship. I've been kind of teasing that I was going to talk about numbers with you regarding December and the fellowship so far. So the first thing I'll talk to you about is December numbers just for orthognathic surgery. You know, I've been hyping up that December is always the busiest month in Charlotte. I just kind of known that, you know, don't book anything off in December. Don't plan on doing anything. You're going to be working all the time. You know that we were operating on Saturdays, for example. Yeah. And that's just a combination of, you know, traditionally people have time off in December. You know, you're off school, you're, you're at a university. The other reason in the U.S. is that because they have health premiums and deductibles and insurance, a lot of people meet their deductibles and they need to have surgery before the end of the year. Oh, so that makes sense. So it kind of creates, yeah, yeah. yeah, it creates this like perfect storm of just massive demand for, for surgery. Know, jaw surgery in December. Yeah. So without further ado, I'll tell you, Oscar, just in the month of December, I did 29 orthognathic cases, 55 jaws, including two bilateral inverted L cases. Wow. Like that's impressive. That's what people don't do in a year. Yeah, I was thinking, I was actually looking at, you know, residency and stuff. It's just like, this was like a whole year of surgery in one month. Yeah, yeah, like for sure. And especially if you're in a program, like, and there's some programs that that won't even get that 
maybe throughout their whole residency if you're not in a heavy jaw surgery program. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And if people have been following our advice and taking a look at their surgical logs, as we said, you should have up-to-date numbers on what you're doing and if you're on track for how many cases you're going to do. But, you know, I'm able to compare to what I did in residency and what I'm hoping to do forward. And yeah, for example, if in the, let's say three years out of practice and into private practice or academics or whatever, if I could say, Hey, Oscar, I did 30 jaw surgeries this year. I'd be happy about that. I'd be like, Whoa, you'd be be winning. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be, I'd be super happy with those numbers. It was a crazy month. It It was a really enjoyable month. Now that I'm halfway through fellowship as well, it's a good time to look back and say, you know, what I've, what I've been doing so far. So, so far I've done 201 cases. 20 of those have been TMJ related, 75 have been orthognathic, 136 jaws, 9 cases were pathology, 31 trauma, 41 infection, 3 cosmetics, and then 2 cleft craniofacial cases. That's a nice mix right there. It's a nice mix. I find that the good thing about this type of fellowship is it's well-rounded in the sense that although, you know, we're supposed to be focused on orthognathic and TMJ, you're getting a good mix of trauma, infection, and You'll remember from previous cases I told you about, a lot of things I've learned and, and you know struggled with is learning to do trauma on your own or learning to do trauma with the resident, not having that steady pair of hands behind you or assisting you, you know, your staff to tell you, hey, you're about to go off path or how do you fix this complication? So I've learned a lot from that as well. Honestly, those are your bread and butter things that if you do come back or when you come back to Canada and you get OR time, you have to be good at that. Because sure, yeah. you're going to be taking your jaw cases, but you've got to take call. And if you're taking call, you're going to be doing trauma. And you're not going to be doing it with another super talented staff. You're probably going to be doing yeah. it either with a nurse or with yeah. like, that's it, right? So realistically, you've got to be able to do this the way you're doing it. That's awesome. That's really good. Yeah. So it's been a really en- enjoyable six months so far. I'm really hoping it can continue for the next six months. I mean, if I could just double this, I mean, you probably won't double just because December was crazy and there's no real month of the year yeah. that compares. But if I could, you know get three something similar to this even yeah three quarters of that for the next six months i think it would be a really fulfilling year and something that you know would just really really help going forward in, in in my career so definitely happy with the numbers so far and it's been really enjoyable one of the things from a jaw surgery point of view that you're always looking for what is that next step in your development you know what is the next thing you can take you know when you're in residency the first step is just learning the procedures learning the anatomy learning the instruments then you have to think okay now that i know all of the instruments and the procedures of jaw surgery, how do I plan a case? How do you determine what's a single jaw, double jaw? How do I consider what the orthodontist, you know, there's always that next step in your development. And everyone always has different aspects of their development that they will find difficult. Some people, as you know, and I think, you know, I have heard this about you. So without boosting you too much, you can kind of confirm and not confirm. I've heard that you were kind of someone that was a little more comfortable with your hands right away. Like you were someone that in the operating room, you, you felt a little more comfortable with the kind of the, the technical carpentry of the work. So yeah, I'll agree with that, that from what I was told that I, that I was good in that sense, but I'm also getting to that. I'm a cautious person too. And maybe that's why I got that feedback because I wasn't going to push to something that I didn't think I could do. Like I wasn't a cowboy at all. So maybe at the times I was showing my skill off, I already knew that I could do it. So maybe that's why that came across like that. Yeah, which is probably a good way to be, especially when you're a new resident with staff. You want to show them that you're you're talented, but you also don't want to be a cowboy yeah. because the staff won't mind you going slow and being cautious and double checking things with them. What the staff's not going to want is you rush something and cause a complication. For sure. And then, you know, the, you didn't give them a chance to help you out kind of. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't agree more. So different people are going to have, you know, different developmental stages. And some people will be very comfortable with the technical aspect, but really struggle with the planning yep. or the didactic side 
or the movements or just trying to figure that out or the orthodontic side. You know, the next step I feel like in my development and what I'm trying to do right now is Brian Farrell is trying to get us to operate more with the resident and he's becoming a little more peripheral because when you operate with him, because he's guiding the surgery, even though you're doing your half, you're he's really just like, you're defaulting, you're defaulting. for sure. You're defaulting to him. And if he, sh- if he puts the instrument in one way or does something or retracts in one way or assists, he's kind of guiding you to the next step and guiding yeah. you what to do and making it as easy as possible. And this is something that had been told to me by previous fellows, as they said, when you work with him, you'll realize he's making the surgery way easier for you. So when you don't work with him, you'll realize, wait, why is this so hard? Like I do this all the time. So the hard part now for me is to think if I'm going to be doing the operating and I'm going to be a staff or doing it by myself, how do I take that next step of being able to do it myself him a little more peripheral and me trying to guide the resident, me trying to guide myself through the steps. I honestly wish the listeners could hear or could see us because they would just see me nodding my head yes to everything you just said, because it is so true. Sometimes you operate, like with you, it's with Farrell. And, and I'll give my example is when we operated with Dr. Caminiti doing orthognathic, he's kind of our guy, is that you get into this false sense of security where you feel you can do orthognathic so quick and that you're not going to make a mistake and that you can solve every mistake. And that's sometimes because the person you're with is so talented. And even though they're not doing it for you, they are guiding you in the right direction. Yeah. So the fact that he's taking a step back and he's getting it already six months in is great because it gives you six months to really develop yourself, not just the technical part, which you now you know you can do. It's the getting yourself out of trouble a little bit. It's about thinking on your own. I think that's amazing for you. You know, we started off with something really simple, like a single piece Lafort, nothing complex, no easy yep. movements, healthy patients. So you start off with something really simple. And that's where I'm at right now. I'm just trying to do some of the single piece Laforts. I'm trying to do a little bit more solo kind of guide the surgery. Yeah. The next step would probably, you know, doing a BSSO, doing the mandible trying to guide a resident through one and, and me doing the other side, for example. And then you're going to get to the complicated stuff like segmental Laforts, inverted L's, that kind of stuff. I will say, you know, we did two inverted L cases uh, recently. And in December, I got my ass kicked. Like it was, it was not easy. You, you, it's just, you, you know the steps, you know what to do, you've done it before. And you get that tough case and you're thinking, man, could I do this by myself with no one else around? And, but so that, the answer you just gave right there, that question that you, said right there will tell me, in my opinion, that you will be able to do this on your own because you realize there are limitations that you're still learning and that you're not exactly where you think you are. I think when you can't do it is when you think, oh, I can do everything perfectly when you're so young in your career. And the minute you're that, you're too quick to say I can do everything, something is going to go wrong. I think it's nice for our listeners to hear because they've heard so much about your fellowship and how much you've learned and how much better you've gotten. It's nice to hear that you still are struggling, that you're still going to have cases where like, oh, that sucked, right? So that's great. No, I think that's awesome. Yeah, definitely. And I think I think that's kind of one of the messages is that, you know, our experience, our veteran surgeon listeners will know that they probably still have cases today. Even, even you know, oh. dental alveolar cases, some implant cases, some wisdom teeth are really humbling. Humbleectomies. No matter how many times you, yeah, humbleectomies you always call it. You yeah. have to. Yeah. You have to because you're always going to have those cases. So luckily the second inverted L case went much smoother, much easier. There were no complications, no problems, nothing. So kind of a little bit of a, a boost there, uh, having nice. you know a really tough one and then and then a better one. Yeah, but just goes to show, only six months still, still got a lot to do for the next six months. Can't slow down now. Which brings us actually to kind of a new tradition we wanted to start. And you know, the New Year's one of the big things that everyone does is they all have New Year's resolutions. And for our, us, you know, 
we might have our own personal resolutions or family resolutions, but we wanted to talk about our New Year's resolutions for us regarding oral surgery. So this resolution has to be related to oral surgery or oral surgery career, something that the listeners can relate to, and maybe it'll give them something to think about, maybe what they want to improve on this year. So each of us will make a resolution, and then we can check on it at the end of the year, and we can make a new one each year. So Oscar, I'll let you go first. What is your oral surgery New Year's resolution? So that was funny, like when we were deciding what we were going to talk about. Yeah, I made all these resolutions for myself, like get in shape. The ones everyone uses, right? Every year and that by February, you've quit them. So it's like, okay, I don't want the same thing <laughs> yeah. for my for my OMFS resolutions, right? Like I want something that's going to last this year. And so I, I, I did take a while thinking of, I'm like, what do I really want? And and so there's nothing concrete. And I think it's a little bit different than probably yours will be. Mine's not anything concrete, like I'm going to focus on one specific thing. It's more, I just want to become a more well-rounded oral surgeon. I just want to. Like I think the jump that I made from year one to year from year zero to year one, I thought it was big, and I think from year one to year two is just as big. And I want to keep that progression. Like I want to be able to, when a patient walks in in these complex cases, I don't want to have to hesitate to treatment plan them. I want to get so much better at that that it just flows off. Like I see some of the partners at our office, and I shadow them quite a bit still because they are impressive. You see the patient come in, and they already know what they're going to do by the time the patient's left that consult, which I think is very very impressive. So mine is more just become a more well-rounded oral surgeon by the next third year that I'm out. You feel like you're progressing each year and you don't want to rest on your laurels. No. You want to you want to actively fight to continue to progress. Yeah, I, I want to still be as motivated as I was in year one and year two to keep learning and not go backwards or not just stay in the same place. I think that's a key word is motivation because everyone just assumes as you keep working, you're obviously going to get better. No. The truth is you're way more motivated at the beginning of your career to actively learn and question what you do and, and your methods to see if you can do it better. Also, you might develop a routine. You might develop some bad habits, yeah. maybe some good habits. So to constantly question that, I think that's a really good idea. And I, I can respect that. I can respect so that resolution thinking? for sure. What do you think for you? So this is what I was thinking. So mine is kind of, it's not vague, but it's kind of something that may or may not happen this year. And what I mean by that is I've kind of come to the realization that, you know, any oral surgeon is going to have complications in procedures you do. So whether you're just doing dental alveolar, you know, the name of this podcast, teeth and titanium, if you're doing extractions, if you're doing implants, if you're doing complex stuff, head and neck cancer, TMJ, cleft craniofacial, orthognathic, no matter what your practice is, you are going to have a complication at some point. Yeah. You know, people that do wisdom teeth, they say, oh, the tooth got displaced into the infratemporal fossa or it's some alveolar space bleeding or massive infection afterwards, you know, it's going to happen to everyone. So what I want to make my New Year's resolution is as a new oral surgeon and also doing a ton of operations right now, but with supervision, but this is the year I'm going to transition to, you know, fully graduating from fellowship. I'll fully be on my own for the first time without having that kind of safety and backup. My resolution is to not let the first time I have a major complication affect the way I practice. So what I mean by that is if I'm doing jaw surgery and I have a bad split to the condyle, have to put them in MMF or something, you know, I don't want then the next time I change my practice or I avoid that procedure or I'm super cautious and super slow now, or I don't let a resident operate as much because I'm super worried about that. I just feel like a complication is coming. It happens to everyone. I haven't had a major, major complication yet. I know it's going to have to happen eventually, and I just don't want it to affect the way I approach my practice or future operations or how I treat patients. And I honestly, I think that's a very actually mature 
goal for you to put in place already before you even start working because honestly i can tell you everyone has complications and they suck they yeah. make like and we all i feel are people that have been throughout our lives kind of in control of what we do right so wh- where we got to where we got to is probably because we put a lot of effort in we planned it we were in control of our lives when you make that complication it's like the first time when you're on your own it's like oh like you're out of control that's not something that you wanted to happen it can really take a toll I, like i can tell you like the first time I had something go wrong, I was like, oh, I felt so shitty after it happened, right? And then you talk to the partners who have been great with me. I talk to them and they're like, oh, it's going to happen all the time. But you have yeah. to have the mindset that you have to be okay with it. As long as it's not the mindset that you don't care about it. You have mm-hmm. to be okay with it and learn from it. And yeah, it doesn't mean change what you were doing because maybe it was just bound to happen. But don't just think, oh, these complications are going to happen. So I think that you're someone that, that is in the right mentality where you're like, I'm not going to let it dictate how I practice. Because you do self-evaluate. You do say when things go wrong. So I think that's a great goal to have. And I'm trying to be proactive about it because by putting it out in the universe now and by telling you and by telling yep. everyone, when it happens and we're going to discuss it. You'll sleep easier. It, well, no, it's more you're going to be there to be like, listen, you said you knew this was going to happen and you're not going to change your behavior because of it. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll have someone to kind of, you know, reinforce what I'm trying to do here. And then two days later, you're a platyperio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Be like, I'm out. This isn't worth it. (laughs) Too much stress. I'm leaving. Yeah. So that's our New Year's resolutions. A little bit bold of us. I'm now kind of thinking to put this out so publicly. I'm sure the listeners will hold us to it and we'll we'll hold each other to it. So we'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed, you know, maybe there won't be a complication this year. But the the message I'm trying to say is in general, everyone listening, they've had tons of complications. And eventually, as long as you can kind of guide the patient through it and manage it, you're fine. It's just something that we all have to deal with and everyone in healthcare has to deal with. Speaking of managing complications, let's get now to our, you know, monthly update on the RCDC and what's going on with the exam. So as a provisional fellow. Yeah, the longest name ever. FRCDC provisional. I can tell you that uh, the RCDC exam is planned on going forward. Uh, They're aiming, I think the email said for May or June. They also mentioned, you know, what the health and safety of our candidates and examinees in mind the decision was made to hold it in an entirely virtual format. Oh, wow. So we are going virtual. Yeah. No, I guess not surprising, to be honest. Not surprising and also good because even if things were okay right now, because right now, you know, numbers are increasing, places are going to lockdown, but even if things were okay, you're always worried about the same thing happening where you're planning on this meeting or this in-person exam and then you have to cancel it. So if their mindset is, we know it's going to be virtual, now it just comes down to figure out the logistics of how to do this yeah. virtually. Yeah. They Basically, what they're going to have to consider is, you know, the security of the exam and how to pair people up and make sure, you know, there's no kind of technical glitches that happen and things like that. The good news is because the entire world is like functioning in a work from home basis and, you know, we do this stuff over Zoom, for example, there's so much technology and so many easy ways now to schedule this stuff that I feel like they'll be able to do it quite easily. Yeah, like if you ask me, a year ago, would this go smoothly? I'd probably be like, there's no chance this is going to go smoothly. Mm. I'll be like, you're going to retake yeah. your exam at some point. Not because you would have failed it, but because something would have gone wrong and the <laughs> exam didn't work out. But now... Wait, so wait. If I don't pass, can I just say, oh, there was a technical glitch, so we're already doing it next year? So what was your resolution, though? Complications? So you got to be honest about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But, but I would say, yeah, now I think it'll probably be glitch-free. Like, I think they'll be able to schedule a good exam virtually. Yeah. So looking forward to that. And we'll see when they actually end up scheduling for and how it's going to work. We'll obviously update everyone. 
The next thing we want to talk about is uh, I've taken up a new position with the AO. So the AO is obviously a massive uh, trauma organization and they have their CMF division, which is, you know, craniomaxillofacial, which is where we fall under. And they have grants and the AO CMF grant, for example, is how I got money to do CT read. Yeah. Uh, it was a combination of the CAOMS and AOCMF. And without both of their support, there's no way I could have done it. I couldn't have built the website, couldn't have funded the videos and all that kind of stuff. So the position I'm taking is a junior grant reviewer. So what that means is you have, every year you have people applying for these grants. So as a junior reviewer, I'm really like, you know, bottom of the total pole and entry position. But my job is it's actually really nice. They give you, you, you tell what topics you're interested in or what, you're, what you know, is relevant to you. And then if they ever find a grant that is relevant to that topic, they'll assign it to you. Then you read the grant application. They assign another junior reviewer. So there's two people. You compare your notes, compare ideas. Then you present to a senior reviewer. The senior reviewer then decides, is this grant worthy of going to the next phase, which is like a full grant application? And the reason it's good is it gives you a chance to look at other ideas that are kind of going around the oral surgery community. It also gives you kind of an inside track to see what the other side is looking for because we've all applied for yeah. grants but we've never been in a position to give someone a grant so you kind of get to see what are the evaluators looking for and what are the discussions that goes on so i did my first one last nice, month already it, yeah it, it was a really good experience and i'll say one of the toughest things is when you read it and you find faults or you think that there's you know room for improvement or you don't think it's a good idea part of it's tough because you're not sure is this not a good idea because that's just my opinion or am I biased because I don't have enough experience to be able to distinguish a good grant versus a bad grant or what's realistic, what's not realistic. So that's what's nice about the senior reviewer. Similar residency, you know, the senior tells you, yeah, yeah you're right or you're wrong or this is why this is not. So it's not like we have a ton of power. We're really just kind of giving our opinion and they make the final decision. And you're almost practicing doing that too. You're kind of like a fact checker that then someone behind you is going to really check even more. So I think that's a great position. Yeah. So excited to do that. It's uh, We'll see how much of a time commitment is. I don't know how frequently these grants come in. So far, I've only had to do one project, but we'll see how that goes. The next thing we want to talk about in current events is I had a question for you, Oscar, because, you know, we talk a lot about my fellowship and all these crazy procedures. And, you know, we just went over all the numbers and everything's been great. But one of my, I wouldn't say concerns, I would say my questions would be once you start transitioning from residency to private practice, there's a whole nother transformation you have to do, which is you have to start operating and working much more efficiently. For the first time in your life, you have right now patients that come to see you, Dr. Dalmeo, for a consult, and then they'll get a price estimate and they'll say, okay, you know, you're going to come see Dr. Dalmeo. He's going to put your child to sleep. He's going to take out their wisdom teeth and it's going to cost whatever thousands of dollars it costs. X. Yeah. And like, you're, so you're, you're like charging people a lot of money for you to do a procedure for them. You're licensed you're, and you have to run an efficient clinic. You have to do multiple. It's not like residency where you can do, you know, few procedures a day. So do you have any tips, not only for myself, that's going to be graduating soon, but for the other residents that are looking to graduate, how do you work on that transition to private practice to become more efficient and be comfortable with the, a much busier schedule than you're used to? So I, I think that is a hard transition to make at first. And I think it, it's a really good question to ask. One, I'm going to speak only of my experience because that's all I can speak about, right? And so I'm going to speak of my experience. I have to give credit to my office. They, they are a great organization. So they do streamline things for us. Things that would have slowed us down in residency. I don't know how yours was, but a lot of times 
let's say maybe the support staff weren't as efficient at turning over rooms or weren't as efficient as getting patients in and there was just delays, like that doesn't really happen at our private practice. And it's maybe because, yeah, patients are paying out of pocket. So we're we're running a business in the end. So that is one huge thing that I'll say you'll have to worry a lot less once you go to private practice. The staff is doing everything they can to make your day run easier. The other thing is you have to, at first, book accordingly. So it depends where you join. I joined a group practice, but I, there's no way that I was going to book my patients the same time frame that the senior partners are going to book because they are just faster yeah. inevitably. And so if I would have done that, I would have ran behind every day. And so I picked a time that was comfortable for me that I knew I could do the work in so that I don't run behind. The worst thing you want to do is when you're starting out, falling behind every patient, then you're trying to catch up. So you're getting a bit stressed, you're getting a bit nervous, and you're probably going to be slower on that case. It just snowballs. So I would say be overestimate how much time you're going to think, or how much time you're going to take. And then book that way. And then because if you finish early, patients are happy. The next patient will be happy to see them early. Yeah. Your staff is going to be happy that you're going to see them early. And then as you get quicker, then you start trimming time off your, off your surgeries. And you'll start to know how you do things and how long things take you. And it becomes a pretty easy transition as long as in that, those first three to four months, you don't overwhelm yourself. That, that's my personal advice. So how long do you think it takes someone new to private practice to start to figure out how long they need to book something for? I think three to four months is a good estimate. I think in one to two months, you've had a pretty good idea, but in the three to four months, you're kind of fine-tuning that. Um, fine-tuning that, yeah. yeah. And as and, you said, it's a, if, if you book longer, it's no problem. The patients love it. The staff love it. You're less stressed. The only issue is eventually you won't be as busy as you could be, but once you realize you know, how much time you actually need, you slowly start trimming back, and then you get to that comfortable level where you're always running on time or maybe a bit behind if the case went harder than you thought. But exactly. you're not super stressed out. Yeah. And, and honestly, you'll realize once you're out in private practice, how much peace of mind matters and how much not stressing about your day matters. Like, sure, you can book 10 sets of wisdom teeth a day and then always be stressed that you're going to be running behind or you can book six and be happy every day or seven, be happy every day. Right. So I, I think you'll find your own balance where peace of mind is worth more than stress. At least to me, it is. It's amazing. I, I think the residents that are listening will be able to relate maybe to the the mindset and, and the change, the transition you have to make, because as much as we're talking about OR procedures, you just mentioned, for example, oh, instead of doing 10, I'll do six or maybe seven. I'll be have a better, greater peace of mind, be less stressed. And in my mind, I'm thinking, man, there wasn't a single day in residency that I did, you know, seven sets of wisdom teeth with IV sedation. There's <laughs> yeah. no way. So, you know, yeah. it's all relative, I guess, once, once you graduate and you get used to that in your office. For you, you're probably looking like, okay, I have six or seven today. This is like a normal day for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, and it will. And honestly, that transition will also happen quickly. You realize because yeah. just just as anything, you're going to be doing so much of something, you're going to be repeating it so often that you just it's second becomes second nature to do it. Yeah, exactly. So the last, you know, this isn't really a current event, but the last topic I wanted to bring up with was kind of a fun topic. I just wanted to ask and see what your opinion was. Are we going to like scotch and wine as we age? Because I got to be honest, you know, growing up, you get to the age where you start drinking alcohol and you you know start partying and things like that. And some people like beer, some people like hard liquor. I was always someone that kind of grew up drinking a lot more of hard liquor. So like vodka, for example, was pretty much my drink of choice. But as I've aged, it's not like I've kind of progressed through the vodkas to be like, oh, I prefer this type of vodka from this yeah. country or this region. I, and if anything, I drink way less, if, if at all, compared 100%. to what I used yeah. to. Yep. Way, way, way less. So I've kind of you know, gone the way of abandoning liquor almost and, and, and beer. But you, know, you, you meet a lot of people that as they age, they start getting into wine. And, you know, wines with dinner or certain types of wines or they enjoy a glass of red uh, at night. 
like, for example, I would never pour myself a glass of wine to have with dinner right now. Like never. This is a perfect question because I've gone through this question myself and I try to convince myself. I'm like, you need to like wine or you need to, you need <laughs> yeah. to start liking wine. And I feel like there's going to be this time where it happens. And so the reason I bring it up is because, yeah, I grew up in a household where people didn't really like my dad and mom didn't really drink wine with dinner, maybe on special occasions, but overall they really didn't. So I wasn't exposed to too much. Lexi, who's my girlfriend on the other hand, her family does drink wine with dinner. And so they're used to it and, mm. and she was used to it. And so we would go out for dinner and she would order wine. But it, to me, it really didn't mean anything. Like I was like, okay, I don't really need wine with my dinner. Why am I going to order it? That being said, like the last kind of, well, yeah, the last two Oh, years, no, you of, turned? No, you yeah. Turned? Kind of corresponding oh, with no. like, being into private practice, I guess, and having more free oh, time. No. It's, yeah. So am I losing all, you to the wine no, game? No, you're not losing me, but you might be joining it too. So all the partners are big wine connoisseurs in my practice. They all drink a lot. And so when we get together mm. with them, we drink. When we go out with Lexi and friends now, we, we do drink for our dinners. And even with our my buddies who you know quite well, Tony and Gav and all my dental school friends, we also drink quite a bit of wine when we're going out for dinners hmm. now too. So I don't know if I fully made the turn. Like I still won't pour myself one by myself, but if I'm out with Lexi or I'm out with anybody else, yeah, for sure you're going to. And I enjoy the taste. I just, I haven't built a habit enough that I'm going to do it on my own, but I enjoy doing it with other people for sure. Yeah, so I haven't made the turn yet. I mean, for me... I enjoy the social aspects of what we're talking about. And I enjoy the social kind of relations from going out for a drink or a meal or things like that. But from the actual, you know, you know, and also my close friends know, they always kind of make fun of me, my taste in beer or, you know, my avoidance of scotch or wine. Down here in the South, there's a lot of bourbon. They drink a lot of bourbon. That's like a big deal here. And it's something else that I have no exposure to and never had before. So I'm just wondering if this is another natural progression we're going to take because I would say You're going almost to. everyone, everyone that's like 25 and under usually is never, you know, drinking wine or caring about wine or any of the stuff. But then you look at everyone, you know, 35 and over, and they're almost always like having red wine or having this taste. So I'm going to try and actively avoid this. I don't know if uh, I'm just trying to avoid this for the sake of avoiding this, but I honestly, we'll see if I ended up turning. I think you're going to turn because in the end, what are you going to do when you go with all your other colleagues, like for an oral surgery for dinner? You're going to order a Shirley Temple? Diet Coke. Yeah, Shirley Temple. <laughs> like, come on, you're gonna join the band of it. You're gonna jump on for sure. Yo, I'm not gonna lie. Shirley Temple sounds great. And I came with the one with the orange juice, the orange juice, the grenadine, or just the grenadine and Sprite, because you know, Clearly, I'm not gonna lie. You're a connoisseur of the Shirley Temples. Well, my friends know that whenever we order drinks, I literally look at the menu and pick the girliest drink that you can see it's always like a cocktail yeah it's always got some kind of cucumber and mint and ginger beer <laughs> an you know? umbrella. yeah there's always an umbrella oh. you know they, they, they always make fun of me for what i order but yeah well, we'll see we'll see what happens but that was just kind of one funny thing we wanted to talk about and it'd be interesting to see for our listeners over time if they become more appreciative of wine or if they're kind of similar to me where they they haven't hit that yet that concludes our current events now let's jump into our resident reminder section Alright, so now that we're getting to our resume reminder, what we wanted to talk about today is actually a topic that was requested, which is to talk about arthrocentesis. And arthrocentesis of the TMJ, you know, it's a minimally invasive procedure. It's something that any oral surgeon can do. It can provide great benefit to the patients. And we just wanted to kind of do a quick, quick review on some indications, some contraindications, and just how we actually go about doing the procedure. And I'm going to be interested to see if you and I do it the same way 
you coming from a very heavy TMJ program and, and having a lot of experience with this. So the first thing I'll get into is just the indications for arthrocentesis. And, you know, the, classically, they describe your acute and chronic limitation of opening because you have an anteriorly displaced disc. Yep. This can be with reduction. This can be without reduction. You can also use it for chronic pain, uh, even if they have good range of motion, if they have uh, anterior disc displacements or just internal derangement. You can use it for degenerative osteoarthritis. You can really use it for a lot of yeah. TMD symptoms. Basically, you want to avoid it. It's easier to sometimes to think when you wouldn't use it. Mm -hmm. The contraindications are an overlying skin infection, which I've actually never seen before. Fibrous ankylosis or bony ankylosis. And then you want to think sometimes arthrocentesis is not going to help you accomplish what you're trying to do. I mean, if they have a disc perforation, I mean, the arthrocentesis yeah. is not going to help that. Yeah. You know, as we said, if, if they have ankylosis, it's not going to help with that. So, like, are you changing anything by doing that? You're just then you're just doing a treatment to do a treatment. Exactly. Have you thought about conservative management? Do they just have myofascial pain? Do yeah. they have neuropathic pain? You know, arthrocentesis is not going to help with any of these. So that's kind of the indications and the contraindications you want to remember because arthrocentesis, like all our, I mean, we usually pick our resident reminders based on high yield topics for not only life but the exams and the boards and things like that. And you're going to ask, you're going to be asked about arthrocentesis all the time like for sure it's it's always asked so getting into actually the surgery and the approach your classic explanation in your textbook is going to be your holdman helsing line your hh line and what it's going to be is mid tragus of the ear to your lateral canthus you're going to draw a line how many times did you draw go, that well this is, well, we'll get into that we're gonna get okay, into this okay. so then you're, you're gonna draw that line and then you're gonna go 10 millimeters forward and two millimeters down on that line, and that's from the tragus. And you're gonna put a dot, and that's your, supposed to be your first needle, your, your entry port. Then on that same original line, you're gonna go 20 forward and 10 down, and that's supposed to be your outflow tract, your second port. Now, the first thing we'll say is, this was classically described for arthroscopy. It was supposed to be you know, your first port, your second port. It wasn't really meant for arthrocentesis. People just kind of adopted it for that. But if someone asks you how to do an arthrocentesis, that's what you tell them. Your Holman-Helsing line, 10 and two, 20 and 10, get into the superior joint space, your outflow tract, you know, irrigate. People always say, you know, pump a ton of lactated ringers in there. You know, a lot of people quote a certain amount you have to give. And then they say you can inject medications at the end. So the different medications you can inject, there's hyaluronic acid, there's steroids, yep. and there's local anesthetics like Marcaine, for example. Yeah. So what I just finished was a kind of textbook explanation of what you need to memorize and what you need to know as a resident. But now we're going to get into real life. And you mentioned something right away, which is how often do you draw that line? So my first question to you, Oscar, is why are you not drawing that line and what are you doing instead? So honestly, the way you're taught is the way you're going to do something, right? And so if I was taught to draw the line, I probably would have drawn it every single time. But literally, I think I've drawn that line once. The very first okay. time I was going to do an arthrocentesis. Um, with one of the staff. But after that, I never do it again because I would just follow the direction of the staff of how they were doing it. So I personally have used that line again, maybe once. And then on my four subsequent exams, when I was asked to talk about that line, that was the yeah, extent exactly. of my usage with that line. Ours was yeah. the way we used it more is more just by palpation, distracting, finding where the actual kind of joint is. And then our technique, the one I use the most is we're kind of coming up. It's hard to describe it without being able to show you like you can audio see format, what yeah, yeah yeah exactly so that's a bit weird but it's like you're coming very vertically kind of from down from below from the earlobe up hitting the arch dropping in and that's your first port and then kind of just five millimeters 
from it, you're putting your outflow port. And, and it's, it's quite easy now that I've done it a lot of the times. But when I was first trying to do it, I was like, can I just draw the line every time? I feel like it's going to be easier that. But the line doesn't always add up. So I, once you get to know mm. it, I think the manipulation and just finding the joint on your own, I think is a better technique. Exactly. So that, that's the exact same progression I made. I've drawn the line way more times than you, obviously. You know, we, we like to draw the lines and map it out. And that's the way I was trained. I will say, though, a lot of the times also we were trained is, you know, draw the line, do your measurements, but palpate before you go yeah. in. Because, as you said, you put a finger there on the joint, you open and close the mouth, do your distraction, and you can feel the condyle moving. Because the problem is when you go, and this is, I think, one of the most common errors, is when you go in with your needle and you get that hard stop, you don't know if you're hitting the condylar head or if you're hitting the zygomatic arch. Yeah. 100%. You want to be hitting the zygomatic arch, and then you can kind of walk it down until you pop into the superior joint space. But the problem is, if you're hitting the condylar head because you just did the lines and the measurements, then you never open and close your mouth. You could be hitting the condylar head, and you're walking down, walking down, walking yeah. down, and there's no you're pop. Just, <laughs> you're just, you're just jabbing that condylar head. Yeah. <laughs> you're just jabbing that head and jabbing that neck. Yeah. So I think that I think our best recommendation is, especially for residents, you know, draw the line. You're going to be asked about it. You're going to need to know what it is. But then take your finger, palpate, open and close the mouth, feel for the joint, feel for where you think the superior joint space is, aim superiorly to hit that zygomatic arch, walk the needle down, pop into that superior joint space. Now, one thing we do here, which is quite nice, is when you pop into that superior joint space, you take like a 10cc of saline and you pump kind of in the needle yeah. before putting your outflow in and you see if the jaw is kind of opening and closing and you can see and if it's moving and you know you're in the space. That's exactly what, so I forgot to mention that. Yeah, we do the same thing. You kind of insufflate with two to three mils you you see it pumping back at you you kind of see this fluid come back out at you so yeah that has to be done and then for the second outflow track as we said almost anyone does like kind of 20 and 10 almost always what they do is they either just triangulate and try and point that needle towards the tip of your other needle because you know that the first needle is in the space so why would you go all the way far away from it exactly. you just want to get into the same space a lot yeah. of people do what you said, five millimeters forward, and then just kind of angle it towards the tip of your first needle and try and feel that both your needles are in the same spot and then start pumping fluid. And fluid should come out the second one. If it's not coming out, that means you're just pumping fluid into the and tertiary stop. spaces. You don't want to do that. Yeah, stop. Yeah. And then what about you, Oscar? Do you inject any form of medication at the end? So yeah, when we're, so like you said, you got to flow enough, like fluid through, which everyone's going to ask you that number two. But yeah, we always inject either marking or lidocaine into the joint after. Yeah. I think the number they quote is at least 100 cc's, but ideally it would be maybe somewhere between 100 and 300 cc's per yeah. joint if you have a good outflow. Exactly. So usually we're doing at minimum 120 for us, like when we were doing it in Toronto. 120? Yeah. Okay. And it's just because it's and easy. You said, two of those big 60 cc's syringes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then, sorry, I missed it. You said you gave marking at the end? Yeah, we gave either lidocaine or marking. So we definitely put a local anesthetic in every time, and then we may or may not put a steroid in. Okay, but do you ever put a hyaluronic acid in? I've only seen one of our staff put hyaluronic acid in, so it's not that common for us to do that, no. Oh, okay. We, yeah. would, we would always put uh, like a provisc or some kind of, you know, viscous solution in yeah. there. No. Just for joint lubrication. And then we would sometimes inject local, either just, you know, with the needle or actually pumping into the joint. Mm -hmm. But okay, that's, that's interesting to me that you guys didn't do as much of the uh, hyaluronic acid. So that concludes our resident reminder. Hopefully a quick kind of review on arthrocentesis and everyone learned something from that. Now let's jump into our journal club. All right, for our journal club for Jameis in January, we have two articles to discuss. A really big kind of U of T plug going on here for a journal club this month. 
all of you got together and said, okay, let's all just publish in the new year. We'll be the first people of 2021. What's going on here? I called everybody I knew and they're like, okay, we got to, we got to get some articles out. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, this, I'm, like no. I'm like, this guy's talking about CT read, MR read. I'm like, guys, we need some credibility. Come on. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we have two articles to discuss. Both are going to be related to U of T and people we know very well. You'll see. So the first one we're going to discuss is the management of zygomaticomaxillary complex fractures using intraoperative three-dimensional imaging, the Zygomas protocol. So this is by our good friend Carl Cuddy, who was your former staff at U of T. Yep. Uh, I know him as well from dental school. We went to dental school together. And he his paper with his fellowship group in Portland, Oregon uh, at HNSA. It's pretty much all the staff, Dirks, Chang, Patel, Amundsen, and Brian Bell. And pre-screening, obviously, this is all oral surgeons. You know, they're very well-known names in the community. Super uh, highly really credible. Know- so super highly credible. Everyone knows about HNSA and, and the fellowship down there. And then even if we didn't know any of these names, you and I know Carl. Yeah. So even if we didn't recognize other names or, you know, I've been to Portland for a month, so I know these people and I've seen their other work, but we also know Carl. So we know that the, it's going to pass the pre-screening. I'm happy to say the article isn't what I thought it was going to be because they already published on just in general using intraoperative yep. CT scanning. Yep. And they have a really good paper on that. So I thought this was just going to be that related to ZMCs and just like talking about how they use it. Mm-hmm. But I already know how they use it. I read the other paper. It was in there. So this is different. This is a retrospective case series. They took 71 patients who were undergoing ORIF of ZMC fractures where they actually used an intraoperative CT. And what's interesting is 17 of the 71 patients, so almost 24% a of the cases, yeah, almost a quarter of their ZMC cases, after taking that CT scan in the operating room, it resulted in a revision. So they changed something. So that was a pretty high number, I thought, almost a quarter, as you said. Now, getting to the discussion section, the first thing we're obviously going to talk about is we love acronyms. We love, if they're good acronyms, we love ripping on acronyms. Here, you have the Zygomas protocol. So right away, I'm going to say, respect to the name the zygomas protocol and i understand that you need to come up with a catchy name for protocols like even when i was trying to think of what to call ct read and mre you got to think of something catchy you want people to remember it right yeah yeah but the acronym has to mean something so i'm always laughing and wondering how did you get there but how how did you get there yeah how did you justify it yeah and you know we ripped on a previous article about like ssi it wasn't surgical site infection it was subsequent surgical intervention or something I like that. I forgot that, like, that we one because I didn't like it. I don't even yeah, remember like that it. one. Yeah. So I'm trying to think, okay, how are they going to come up with zygomas? So here is the, here's the breakdown. So zygomas is zygomaticomaxillary guided intraoperative management for accurate surgery. So at first you're like, okay, I mean, it, it works. It's fine. But they did this hilarious thing where they took the Z and the Y from zygomatic. You have to be looking at the article to know what we mean right now. Yeah, like the Z yeah. and the Y are both capital because technically it's just the Z is the first letter, right? Then guided is the G. Then it's intraoperative, but they kept the I lowercase and the O and operative uppercase. So it's intraoperative. So that, that's how you get your O. And then management for accurate surgery. So listen, we're not being haters. We think it's hilarious. And as I said, Zygoma's protocol rolls off the tongue. It's a great name of the protocol. But they are reaching hard to fill in this acronym. So it's funny you say that. I'm going to give them so much credit for actually being able to think of that acronym because I think it's impressive. But like you said, 
they are reaching hard to make that work. That's like a <laughs> rapper that makes up a word just so it rhymes with the yeah. previous word. Yeah. I'm like, that wasn't yeah. a real word though. Yeah. yeah. Or just kind of mumbles it so you don't really know what's going on. Yeah. yeah. But still, Carl, still I'm get sure credit Carl will be the first thinking. to admit. Yeah. They thought of it. I'm sure Carl will be the first to admit that it's kind of a funny, funny way of getting that acronym, but it's catchy. So it works. Yeah. So, you know, they said as they previously reported, 12, you know, in their other article, they had done 12 orbital floor fractures and it was associated with a 31% revision rate when they were using interop CT, so also very high. And they also said that if repairing a ZMC fracture where orbital floor reconstruction is required, we recommend the use of an intraoperative CT. They also said significantly displaced ZMC fractures. So that's either the number of fractures, adjacent fractures, or the degree of displacement. They can also benefit from intraoperative CT to assess whether or not you need to do the orbital floor or not. And they tried to break it down to exact criteria when it was beneficial and when it was not. And this is what I thought was good about the article because it wasn't just a, this is what we did and, and no. this is how we did it. It was, how are we taking what we did to try and actually make a recommendation for you to do your next case? Would yeah. you do it? Would you not do it? How do you improve and try and how Exactly. How do you improve things? And what criteria can you use to decide if you're even going to do this or not? So they were talking about, you know, two vector displacement or five millimeters displacement. They said those were associated with an increased incident of revision in their study. They also mentioned that, which I also like, they said, ultimately, the group has decided against routinely using intraoperative navigation in addition to intraoperative 3D imaging due to the minimally perceived benefit from this technology compared to intraoperative CT. So I remember this was a big deal because when this article, the, the previous article first came out and when this was really blowing up in the US at all the courses, intraoperative CT, a lot of people were saying, well, do you do intraoperative navigation? Do you do intraoperative CT? Do you do both? Mm -hmm. Like what's necessary? And I remember I thought at the time I was like, if I were to pick one, I would for sure pick intraoperative CT because we don't, need as much except for super complicated cases to see the ct and see where you're going yeah it's really you want to do the work you know how to do and check to see if what you're seeing is actually what's going on yeah i agree so my thoughts were i thought it was a good article to try and explain when to use an interop ct as it definitely does not make sense to use it every single time i think the criteria for using an interop ct are a bit generous in my opinion the reason is you know they had a great protocol in portland to the point where they could just say we're doing this case, and by the way, this is going to be a, an interop CT case. Or during the case, they would just they would just call for it. You know, you, you know how you call for a an instrument or call for a suture. They would say, "Yeah, we need interop CT." And and you I know, I don't even know if that's a protocol one. I, I feel like that's a luxury, especially when we're talking about Canadian programs. Like when you come back here, you're going to notice. And then you train a Canadian program, so you know you couldn't just call for it. I'm going to do. Oh, I want to check this out. I'm going to do interop CT. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Even if we had the facility or, or the equipment or the machine, it still wouldn't happen that easily. No. Here in Charlotte, we do not have that at the hospital, which, I, to be honest, I'm kind of happy because it is training me a way to do trauma without having that luxury around. Which is what you're um, going to be doing here. Which is what I'm doing there. That being said, remember that case I talked about the orbit that I was really worried about? Yeah. You know, if I could just bring in an interrupt CT, it would have gotten rid of all of my concerns. I would have seen it. This was great. We're not de we're not diminishing the value of it. We're just saying the application of it isn't probably as applicable for us here. Exactly. So I think that the best advantage I see from the technology, almost from like a standard of care point of view, is if you have a bad ZMC fracture and you're going to reduce it and you're not even sure, do I need to do the orbit or not? 
you don't know, did that orbital floor fracture get better, get worse? I mean, you can kind of tell by the rotation, but you don't really know, is it still need to be explored? Yeah. So if you could wheel in an intra-op CT and in Portland, you know, they wheel it in, they do it, they leave. It's like a 15, 20 minute process. It's really it's efficient. And you can avoid an eye approach. Oh. It's great for the patient. Great for you. Great for everyone. That's the best application. It for would it, justify every single time be done in that case. Every single time. Completely agree. Now, one thing is, it is a little bit of a slippery slope in the sense that let's say you do an orbit and you take the intra CT and it's a little bit off. Maybe it's just below the posterior ledge. Mm-hmm. Do you okay. revise it and then redo the CT again? Yeah. Do you leave it? If you have to think in the mindset, if I had, you know, finished and walked out of the OR and then two hours later I got the CT and I looked at it, would what you I- be taking that patient back to fix that? Probably not. I agree. But now you're in the OR and you see that it's wrong or it's a little bit low. So you kind of get into this rabbit hole of, are you just treating the radiograph? And also, are you going to keep revising everything to be perfect? It's a little bit tough to make those decisions. And, and like I would say, and I, I actually really enjoyed the article, but even, even that, my biggest caveat with this article is that they had 17 out of 71 or something like that, 20, like 24% or a quarter had revisions. My question is, would those revisions, would, have ha- would they have happened postoperatively if you did not have that? And I don't know yeah. if all of those would have happened is my point. And would they have had a clinical effect? Because yeah. everyone's had orbital floors where you look at the postoperative CT and it's a little bit lower on the posterior ledge yep. than you thought. Maybe you didn't get it. Or it's, a little, you know, the one I talked about was a little bit high on the lateral. Yep. Obviously, if you see anything major like entrapment or it's encroaching on the optic nerve and stuff, everyone's going to go back and revise that. Mm-hmm. But Because it's not as simple as, okay, I was a little bit below the posterior ledge. I'm just going to go push this a little bit. And now I know I'm on it. It's no, you, if you're below the posterior ledge, you got to move, you got to, you know, if you put fixation, take out the fixation, move the plate, try and get back on the ledge, put your fixation back on. And then are you just assuming that now it's perfectly fine? You probably need another CT scan afterwards to confirm where it is now. Yeah. And you know what, now that we're just even like that, we're talking it together, we can kind of brainstorm a little bit more. I think that's, that's completely right because there, I think anyone who's done this study response would be like, okay, well, wouldn't you want, you want to get a better results? Yeah. And I'd be like, okay, yeah, you're right. Every patient should get the best result. I think another question should be asked is, okay, in the patients that had a revision, how much longer was their surgery? Was there any increase in surgical length? So in the people that did need revision or the ones that did get a revision, did they have more negative consequences? Because yeah, maybe the plate had to be taken out and then put back in. So we have to take those things into consideration as well. I feel that that question isn't asked. Yeah, definitely. So I think both of you and I would 100%, if someone came up to us at our hospital and said, do you guys think you'd benefit from an intra-op CT? We're saying, oh yeah, take it in a 100%. Heartbeat. We want it. No question. Yeah, we take it in a heartbeat. We would use it for sure. I think it's great. I think what I talked about, you know, needing to do an orbit or not. Um, also in any kind of training program, it would maybe give you a little more flexibility to let the resin do a lot more because then you can say, hey, listen, I'm guiding you, but you put the plate where you think it's supposed to go. Yep. Intra-op CT shows if they were right or wrong, and then you can fix it kind of thing or help them. So be beneficial from that point of view. So a nice article overall, giving you some criteria to kind of use, especially if you have that technology in your hospital. It would be interesting to know in the Canadian system at our residency programs, how many people do have intra-op CT. I know you guys don't at Toronto. I know we don't, we don't have it uh, at McGill. But we'll be see, uh, interesting to see going forward if it becomes more and more prevalent. So that was our first article. So uh, shout out to Carl and the group there for, for their good work. Yeah, I really like uh, that. And now, yeah, and now we'll move on to our second article. And, you know, our second article, you had to know it was coming. I mean, anyone that reads James probably read this and was like, oh, these guys are going to talk about this for sure. And for if, once, you di- if you didn't, you don't know us and shameless plug yet. You don't know us at all. And for once, it's not a shameless plug 
By me. I know. It's 2021. It's a new year. It is a new year. We've reversed roles. You're dropping the shameless plugs and we got public and professional perceptions of the scope of practice of oral and maxillofacial surgeons. First author, Dr. Oscar Del Mayo. I know. Like, what even, up, Oscar? Even when I saw it, I'm like, oh, we're going to have to talk about it. Now they're going to call me the new Wendell. It's just going to get awkward on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So you did, you did this with a bunch of staff at UFT, you know, Dr. Caminati, Blanis, Dr. Lamb. You also had a, a master's and a PhD student with you. Um, uh, so, so correction, she's not, no, she's actually a PhD. She's not a student. She is in dental public health. When, and you'll see why we chose dental public health. She was really valuable to the project in that sense. Oh, perfect. Yeah. yeah. So that was Laura Dempster. Yeah. So pre-screening, I mean, come on. You put our names on an article. There's no pre-screening. You know it's perfect. It's valid, for sure. It's valid. It's valid. <laughs> it's, it's, the power is good. The statistical significance is good. You know, you mean Muhammad El Rabini, you yeah. don't need to look it up. Yeah, exactly. Everything's great. You know, my former McGill people don't need to look into the numbers too much. Just accept our word for it. Everything's good. So no pre-screening necessary this time. So, Oscar, why don't you jump into this and tell us, you know, what were the goals of the study? What were you trying to accomplish and what inspired this study? So at UFT, like I know your program is a little bit different, Wendell, but at UFT, you need to have a master's project to graduate. Like it's part of the actual prerequisite to graduate. So whenever you join, they ask you, what's your project going to be? What are you interested in? And, and really, that was my tough. I knew I was interested in oral surgery, but I had a, the toughest part for me was deciding what my master's research project was going to be on. Like I went through my first year, at least three quarters of it, and I, and I really couldn't think of anything that I'm like, I'm so interested in this that I want to do research, that I want to really look into it, and I want to take the time to look into it. But I knew I had to. And then one time, my family came over and some that were at my condo, and my family, just so you know, like they're dentists, okay? And then I was on call that week, and so I got a page, and I look at it, I call, the, call them back, I call Emerge, and they're like, yeah, patient's got an orbital fracture. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm the junior resident at this point. So I'm like, yep, I'm going to go assess this patient. And then I tell my okay. family, I'm like, sorry, guys, I got to go. Patient has an orbital fracture. And their response was like, oh, so what's wrong with their teeth? <laughs> and, and, I, and I realized, and again, I'm talking to two people, both my parents are dentists, and so they're both dentists. And I'm like, no, this is what we deal with. So I realized that moment, I'm like, I was so, exactly, that's, that's how I, I took it as. And I, I realized that moment, I'm like, even people who are in our field have no, no idea. real idea of what we can do. And so then I went to then, at the time, our program director, Dr. Lamb, and I brought him this idea. I'm like, I thought my parents would know a lot more of what I do. And so if they didn't even know the extent of our scope of practice, how would the general public know what we do? Or how would a mm -hmm. family physician know what we do? And so that's how that project came to be. And so we started brainstorming with him. He was super, super good and, and valuable to my project. He helped so much. But we started brainstorming in, in how we were going to get the, the question or what the question was going to be. What we really want to know is, one, how well known are we in the community? And two, how well known is our scope of practice? Those are two different questions. One is, have people heard of us really? Are they even aware what an oral, like what an oral surgeon is? And then two mm -hmm. is, if they've heard of us, really, how much do they know of what we actually can do? And so those were the two questions we were trying to answer. We then narrowed it down to the populations we wanted to ask, which are primary care physicians or family physicians, and then the general public and general dentists. And the reason we chose those three populations is really because family physicians in Canada are, are gatekeepers when it comes to really a lot of things. You heard something on your face, you go see your family doctor, and then they'll refer you to somewhere else. You have a yeah. bump in your, on your face, you go see your family doctor, and they're going to refer you to a specialist. That's just it's amazing how many people will have head and neck problems and go to their family physician, 100%. even if it's in their mouth. It's crazy. They'll go to their family doctor before they go to their dentist. Exactly. And so your family physician, and the same thing that comes when, with your dentist is you have something in your mouth, you'll go see your dentist, then they'll refer you. So those are two kind of gatekeepers into referrals for us, right? So I thought they were important to talk to. 
And then the other one is just the general public because they are the ones that can ask for this referral. So those are the questions we were asking. The reason we were asking is not just to know, because, okay, great, we want to know what they think, but because it really can affect healthcare, and especially in a country like Canada. In a country where some treatments are OHIP covered, and you're waiting months to months to let's see an ENT surgeon or a plastic surgeon because your family doctor didn't know that an oral surgeon can also treat this under OHIP, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's streamlining care for patients. So I thought that's why it's another reason that it was important to actually ask this question. So one thing I really liked is you, I mean, in the article, you guys actually did a legitimate power like calculation to see yeah. how many people you want to do. And what I really liked is you calculated how many people you would need to respond or, or answers you would need. And then you doubled the amount of surveys and calls you made because you knew you're not going to have anywhere near 100%. How many so times do we ignore so things? Na- oh, all the time. I ignore your calls most of exactly. the time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you knew that it would have been so annoying if you calculated the power and then sent that number of surveys out and then you got you know a 50% response rate and then you're just you know nowhere near where you're supposed to be. Yeah. So what's nice is you guys, you know, you did end up having an overall response rate of 50%. But 902 responses, like that's pretty impressive. That's yeah, pretty good. We were happy with that. Track. Yeah, that's really good. So to kind of break it down, I also like how you did it. You just went to kind of the databases and just randomly went through it and randomly picked each people. To break it down, kind of the results, it ended up being, so when people think of trauma, the good news is people were thinking of OMFS first for trauma of the maxilla and the mandible. Yeah. But any other no. bone in the face, it was plastics. Yeah. And when I think of it, I can't blame the general public because we're so I. biased because we know. I. But if if someone said, oh, you hurt your face, who are you going to see? And someone says, oh, I'm going to go see a plastic surgeon. They'd be like, baller, like nice. That They're going to they're, they're gonna make you look nice and do some cosmetics. Everything's going to be great. And like, exactly. The point of this study, or a lot of times people might read it and be like, oh, this is obvious. Yeah, we know it's obvious. We know it's obvious. But. Yeah. Other people don't know what's obvious, and we kind of have to bring this to, to show it. Like, if we want to progress or if we want to keep expanding our scope, we have to then focus on areas that, that we aren't thought of as, oh, they should be doing this. Yeah, exactly. So, in a similar light, when it came to cancer, everyone, you know, pretty much put ENT number one. A lot of people thought of oral surgery maybe for more benign lesions. You know, coming from McGill, it, it does show even the general dentist, you know, in Ontario, they were putting ENT first. Yeah. For cancer. Now, granted, oral surgeons are not treating cancer in Ontario, so yep. that kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. But I know at McGill, you know, it's an education process. You have to go around. You have to educate people. Yeah, I'm an oral surgeon. I'm treating cancer. To get referrals from dentists, from uh, other oral surgeons, you really want to educate. So that kind of made sense in Ontario that cancer people would think of ENT. Reconstruction, they thought of plastics. So this was I was a little bit surprised about because I thought it would be kind of a split between plastics and ENT for a lot of the recon. What was your experience in Toronto Maybe even with your off service, do people kind of rely on plastics for a lot of the flaps or is ENT doing them? Like, what's the deal there? No. So, and I feel like, yeah, that's something that that stood out a little bit more to me, especially in Ontario, because most of the flaps in Toronto are done by ENT. Yeah. Okay. Right. So like the only thing I can think of is people were associating cleft lip and cleft palate with a plastic domain. And so they're seeing reconstruction that in that sense, um, which was also plastic heavy choice. But yeah, Mm -hmm. in terms of the actual training in Ontario, it's much more ENT heavy for, for flaps. It used to be a plastic domain, but that's really transitioned in the last little while. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, now I come to understand the responses a little more. Our next topic, I mean, wisdom teeth and implants, everyone put OMFS number one and that's what we want. Yeah. That's, that's, that's the money teeth and titanium. So at least we're not losing that battle. 
Yeah, but you'll you'll see if you like even again you have to be nitpicking looking at the numbers and I it's my study so I really nitpick, but it wasn't a hundred percent pick. It wasn't hundred percent, which is no, still crazy. Which is still crazy, crazy, right? Yeah, it was crazy. Yeah. It was like eighty percent, I think, or something. Yeah. Like it wasn't a hundred percent. It was still a little bit alarming because I mean, come on, wisdom teeth and implants. You got to think of us. That's synonymous, like, at least for that. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Teeth and titanium. It's the name of the podcast. Jaw surgery also OMFS number one. Yeah. I was really happy about that because I was a little bit worried maybe people would think especially, you know, the general public, oh, jaw surgery, it's going to be a cosmetic thing. Maybe that's plastic. Yeah. So I was kind of happy they recognized that OMFS were, were doing that. And then finally, cosmetic surgery was plastic. Nothing. Yeah, we got nothing. There. I mean, yeah. And what I thought of when I was thinking about that was, first of all, I totally understand why plastic surgery is going to, is going to win that yeah. all the time. Yeah. You look at TV shows, you look at media, you look at their training, like they just do a ton of cosmetics from a public perception point of view. Yeah. Now, granted, a lot, a lot of programs, they might actually not do a lot of cosmetics in their actual residency. Yeah, yeah. And that's a fellowship. But I think the hard part here is even as an oral surgeon, when you know another oral surgeon, for example, specializes in cosmetics, sometimes it's difficult to tell your patient, oh, you're looking for a nose job, you're looking for a facelift, go see this oral surgeon. Because although you know them, you think they're great, you know their work, it's just tough. Your patient might look and be like, what do you mean? You're an oral surgeon, but you're referring me to another oral surgeon, but they do this cosmetic stuff. Like, why wouldn't I go see a plat? Like, if you tell your patient, I'm going to refer you to a plastic surgeon to go get your facelift. There's no hesitation. Like, yeah, They're going to go. Of course. Yeah. They're going to go. And, and so what I think made our study, I'm going to use say better, but I shouldn't say better, but better than previous studies that did the same question is that I, we allowed participants to select everyone that they thought could do that specific function, right? So I wasn't mm-hmm. just asking who is the best? Because then, yes, then we would never get selected for, for cosmetics because likely most people yeah. are just going to associate plastic surgery. But what it is telling is that they didn't even think we could do it. <laughs> yeah, they didn't put you like in the wheelhouse. We're not in the option. So I don't, I don't, we didn't need to be number one, but we should have been picked and we weren't almost picked at all for the cosmetics. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. no, that, that's definitely interesting to see. So one other last thing I wanted to ask you about was you did a Dillman tailored design survey method. I never heard of that, obviously. So I looked it up and it's basically what it meant is you used an initial invitation letter mm-hmm. to let them know a survey was coming. Yep. Then you did a phase distribution, started, you know, sending out the surveys to all these people by mail. Then you would also do follow-up phone calls in order to maximize the response rate and multiple mail-outs and follow-up reminders. So what I get is, you know, you sent the survey, then you have to do follow-up phone calls, you have to send multiple mail-outs, you have to kind of almost harass people to get responses and get as many as you can. That I totally get. What I don't get is, why send out the initial invitation letter letting them know a survey is coming? Because someone might read it and be like, oh, that's kind of cool. But if they just had the survey, they would have done it right then. Like, why why let them know about it? Why not just give them the survey right away in the first kind of mail out? That's funny because I asked that same question when I was making the survey. But then when you read a study, you do see that there was a significant increase in the response rate with that introduction. It's almost melt, It almost made the person, and again, this is what I took from it because I I didn't design his study, right? Um, yeah. But it almost made like the person feel like they were being acknowledged and they were going to be given something. And then they were going to okay. be like, oh, you know what? I'm committed to this. Like, I, I'm going to fill this out for you. It's not like you, you said, here's your study, fill it out right now. And let them prep for okay. it. So that's how I took it as. And it, it was shown to increase, again, response the response rate. rate. So anything we could do, we were going to try. Yeah, it's impressive because it's counterintuitive. You know, I would have thought if I got something in the mail, I'd rather just do it right then and there. But you're right. If I, might, if I get the mail and it's this long checklist or thing, I might be like, ah, what is the survey and throw it out? But if I get like a little invitation that says, hey, exactly. just so you know, we're sending something, then you might look forward to so You might be like, oh, yeah, I remember this. So yeah. listen, I learned something from that. I didn't realize that that was a, a method you could use. And it, it seems to have worked out well because you had a great response rate. Yeah, we were very happy with that. Like you said, so, time consuming, but we were happy with it. 
Yeah. So obviously, you know, I, I thought it was a great article. I think public perception is so important. My final question to you on, on behalf of the listeners would be, I think you've identified a great problem we have here. So what is the solution? How do you work on this problem? And so I think part of the problem is even the what we use routinely between me and you, we say oral surgeon all the time, right? Mm-hmm. That limits our scope inevitably just when we say that. When we don't use our full name, but it is, it's long, it's wordy, oral maxillofacial surgery. I stutter half the time I'm trying to say it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I get stuck on like the syllables. But so my point is, it, it's on us is what I'm getting at, right? We have to make, and when I say us, I mean the young generation of oral surgeons that are coming through. We have to make an effort to kind of show what we can do. I think you're doing a great job with all your research, but we have to show people that we can do things just as well as other specialties, if not better. We have to make these marketing campaigns that other specialties, like you said, plastic surgery, how well are they in the media? We have to show Mm -hmm. that stuff too. That's the only way. And I think we have to start at grassroots levels. I don't know how it works in McGill, but a lot of our med students have no exposure to oral surgery. None, Mm -hmm. none, right? So like when sometimes plastics will rotate with us, that's the first time they've ever even really heard of oral surgery. And they're like, oh, you guys do all this. They should have been introduced to us in their medical school curriculum, right? Yeah. So that they know about us at the beginning because then it's a lot easier to ingrain things when you're just learning than it is to change someone's perception once it's already been formed. For sure. Definitely. That's something we had at McGill because, you know, Jordan, the year above me, he was the first person to go through the, you know, combined McGill, OMFS, MD kind of six-year program. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they were like, who's this guy? We've never heard of you. So when I got there, they had no idea who I was either, but at least the people that knew upper years or kind of heard of Jordan, they were like, okay. But even me, you know, I did explain to every single yeah. staff I had, every single rotation, psychiatry, OB, guy, and everything, who I was, why I was doing an MD, how I was working. But as you said, once you get word of mouth out and people get used to it, people are like, okay, we get it now. And now every every year the med students know, okay, yeah, we have this one guy and he's yeah. in oral surgery. You know, everyone assumed I was a PhD student. No one knew who this random guy was joining the class halfway through med school. Exactly. The other good thing is you got to get involved in the education side. As you said, yeah. I was a lecturer at the medical school, both for anatomy and also they asked me to do odontogenic infections and like facial infections, which was great yeah. because I was talking to first year medical students. I was explaining who I was, who we were and saying how we treat these things that we're super comfortable with. That's so they can ideal. tell like, oh, these guys know what they're talking about. It was, it was ideal. So I think, as you said, it's really hard to explain to someone that already has that perception of how this works compared to getting at an early level and just kind of becoming part of the norm. If you go talk to an eMERGE physician that's been working their whole time in a rural community that doesn't have an oral surgeon taking call, yeah. and you say, hey, yeah. we can fix your orbital fracture, they're going to be like, you're crazy. You're crazy. Your parents didn't even think you could do it. Exactly, right? But if you go talk to a first-year med student and you show them what we do, and then you talk yeah. to them 10 years into their career... And they're like, oh, yeah, you guys can do that. You give me a lecture on it. Yeah. Right? It's very different. Exactly. Definitely. To wrap it up, do your parents now understand that you're able to do more than teeth? Or are they still? uh... I don't know. I don't know about that yet. No, I'm joking. (laughs) 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 I've showed them enough pictures. And now they're like, oh, okay, I I see what you can do. Yeah. So it's funny because this was the year, actually, I think three months ago, I sent, because my family, you know, my parents are interested. They'll ask about, obviously, Bianca, my wife knows about all this stuff. But, you know, my siblings and their spouses, they don't, re- I mean, they kind of know what you do, but they don't really know what I do as yeah. an oral surgeon, right? And, you know, my sister, Colette, she's, in dent- uh, she's a dentist, so she would know more than, than the average you would think. But even then, they don't really know exactly what you're talking about, what you're doing a fellowship in. So I actually found like this three-minute YouTube video on what corrective jaw surgery, aka orthognathic surgery is, and I just emailed it to them. And they watched it and all of them were like, now we understand <laughs> what you're talking about. Like, we had no idea what you're, what you're doing your fellowship in or what jaw surgery, yeah, like, yeah. what are you doing? So at least, you know, sometimes, as you said, people won't know, but you just got to kind of tell them about it. And and that's how it works. For sure. 
So that concludes our journal club. Two great articles, and uh, it was super fun to go through them with a with a huge UFT kind of plug contingency uh, right there. But, yeah, but that's good. I mean, UFT had some catching up to do. We were talking about a lot of McGill publications. And now UFT has kind of like entered the fray. So we're happy about that. And as I said, we always look through Jameis every month. We look for interesting articles. But if we do come across someone's name that maybe we recognize, we do try and give them a plug and, and try and talk about it if it's relevant to the episode. All right. With that being said, let's jump into our final segment. Let's talk about recommendations. All right, Oscar. Recommendations has become not only one of my favorite segments, but I think it's a listener fan favorite. They love to hear about our updates on these recommendations and get ideas on what to watch or, or what we like, what we don't like. And, and then they can kind of compare it to their experience and if they like it or not. Before we get to our new recommendations, I feel like this this segment has now evolved into we need to talk about our previous recommendations yeah. and then get to our new yeah. our new ones, which, which is fair. So I'm going to start off with I watched The Undoing. You recommended it last I did. last uh, episode. You said HBO miniseries. I love HBO. I love miniseries. You said it's addicting. Watch it. I watched it with my wife. It was six episodes. You know, we're a no spoiler podcast. But what I will say is, for five episodes, I was like, "This is awesome!" Like we were we were hooked. We were addicted. We were watching it. Yeah, great yeah. acting, great plot, everything. And then you know, you watch the last episode. You get to the ending, and I won't say what the ending is, but the both, sour taste, like. Yes, the, yeah. the credits rolled, yeah. and both my wife and I look at each other and be like, "Are you kidding me? That's it?" It's funny. Me and Lexi, we looked at each other like, "What the? Like, where's the rest?" Yeah, yeah. where's yeah. the rest? Yeah, uh, I agree. So, I, knowing what I know now, I don't think I can, with good conscience, recommend the show to the listener. Like, like do the double recommendation in the sense that you know, if you recommend it and then I recommend yeah. it as well, they have to listen to it. Yeah, I can't give it that stamp because trust me. If, if you think about it, you know, we had five episodes of pure entertainment, but yeah. then to finish in such a bitter way, you're like, well, was it worth it? We had a lot of Makes entertainment, but, yeah. then, but then we hated the end. So tough to say. Yeah. Um, but but my overall suggestion would be, no, do not watch the show because you will be frustrated. You will at the end. Because again, I, I'm someone who did enjoy the joint. I gave the recommendation, but even at the end, like you, you, you did so good for five episodes. Like, why would you do it that way? But yeah, yeah exactly. And then the second thing you talked about this is not a tv show but you had talked about you know you were trying to get more in shape and working out and i'm also now trying to get you know in better shape trying to go to the gym more often and what i decided is you recommend or you didn't recommend this so I, I can't be too harsh but the fact that i just wanted to reinforce the fact that you work out without music is i don't know how you do it because i'm there i'm on the bike or i'm on the <laughs> treadmill and i'm pumping yeah i'm pumping like edm i'm pumping beats i'm pumping electronic music and it's motivating me. And it's at the level where even if I get to a song I don't like, I start losing motivation. You're yeah, like, I'm done. I'm, all, I'm over I'm this. Like, I'm done. Yeah. yeah, like this isn't worth my time. And I'm just trying to picture you running for long distances without any music. And I just got to say, I don't know how you do it, but to anyone that's starting to get into working out, I would highly recommend using music <laughs> or, or something. <laughs> or, or not or this doing. Podcast, yeah, yeah. Or a podcast, you know, to, to occupy the time. And I know a lot of people listen to this podcast on their drive or, or during their workout. So they'll probably be laughing. But I think you need to have something going on. And I guess it's just, I may have got used to it from kind of my soccer training growing up, right? Like you never had music, you were just training. So like I got used to doing it that way and that's the way I know it. I probably could benefit from listening to music, but again, that's just the way I used to, I'm used to doing it now. Yeah. I mean, if you're happy, keep going. So that was my update on previous recommendations. Do you have any updates on any recommendations from other episodes? So I wanted to confirm because I couldn't remember, were you the one who recommended Homeland? So it wasn't originally me. It was Miller Smith. That's okay. I knew it was, the, there was the something president. 
Yeah, it was Miller Smith, the president of CAOMS, and I kind of backed him up. I said he recommended this, and I I uh, support him okay, and in this recommendation because I've also seen it, and I also think it's great. So and, and that's what I, I gave thought. Him, I gave him my support. Okay, and I, so I thought it wasn't just you. Like I was going to give you credit, but I'm like, I don't think it was just him that was was giving us this recommendation. And I'll say that even though that won't be my recommendation for this time, I watched it and I loved it. All of it? Yeah, I'm done. Eight seasons. It's, <laughs> it's seven. Isn't it like seven seasons it's or eight. something? <laughs> yeah i'm done and it, it, you're like you're done no but honestly it was amazing isn't it so really good? really good like really good i definitely recommend that sometimes yeah. her character annoys me and frustrates me super annoying oh, super annoying my gosh oh. but definitely so, worth sometimes. watching but definitely worth watching. And, and, and the thing is sometimes her character is super annoying but she's real it's yeah. not fake it's like it's real emotion it's real problems she's really good at her character she's so good at her character and man like all the terrorism plots and the yeah. trying to figure it out and the mystery and stuff it is a really good show yeah yeah 100% Miller, miller's gonna be happy happy that you liked his recommendation because that was his first recommendation and it was, oh. it was a hit both i liked it both you liked it it's like a triple recommendation yeah. almost yeah no that was great and he can definitely give recommendations anytime he wants yeah he hasn't been blocked so miller if you want to give another one in the future we're listening. allowed to exactly so now we'll jump into our new recommendations so i have a feeling that you know for the next few episodes my recommendations are going to follow a theme and the theme is I'm trying to now go back in time and watch the things that everyone has probably already seen, mm -hmm. but I, I never actually watched. And some of them are considered classics. Some of them are considered amazing shows. And I just never had a chance to watch them. So movie wise, I went back and I watched the Godfather trilogy. Oh, nice. So I had never seen the Godfather trilogy before. Now I'd seen like clips and yeah. you always hear about famous scenes and famous lines, but to actually watch the movie and, and hear them say things like, oh, I'm going to make him an offer. He can't yeah. refuse. Like, you're like, oh yeah, you know, this is what this comes from and stuff like that. So what I would say about the Godfather trilogy is I thought number one was phenomenal. Yeah. I was shocked at how good it was because usually these things don't live up to the hype. It was really good. Like phenomenal. I thought Godfather One was yeah. amazing. Yeah. I thought Godfather Two was pretty terrible. Okay. I did not like Godfather Two. And it's weird because I'd say it's, you know, the Godfather is kind of split between people that love one or love two. Yeah. I'm I really didn't like two. I'm definitely a person that likes one way more. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we agree on that. Yeah. So I liked one. I didn't like two. And then I actually really liked three. I was I thought for sure, because three is made like 16 years later. Everyone's like super older and I actually really liked it. I thought it was a great plot. It was kind of, a th I thought it was a throwback to number one where you never knew what was going to happen and anyone can kind of die or, or violent scenes. So I actually really enjoyed three. It's funny you say that because that's the one I haven't watched. So now I may have to watch it. Oh, you haven't seen movie three, man. You got to watch, you got to watch the third one then. Can I add it's, that to uh, my I, list? Yeah, for sure. I thought it was pretty enjoyable. So Godfather trilogy, uh, if you haven't watched it and you're tired of everyone talking about it all the time. Uh, I think it's definitely worth watching, especially if you, even if you just watch Godfather 1, you'll pretty much yeah. get all the references and get all the characters, and it's really good. And then the other movie trilogy that I've never seen before, and this was kind of holiday, Christmas time inspired, was the Die Hard series. I've never seen Die Hard or, or any of those movies. Neither have I. I haven't so, seen one of them. I haven't seen any of them? Okay, no. so I watched Die Hard 1, I actually think uh, a while ago. I'd seen that one. But within, when I say a while ago, I mean within the last one or two years, whereas everyone else has seen it, you know, years and years ago. Yeah. And I thought I was enjoying it. You know, it's a light movie. It's an action movie. You just want something kind of in the background or a really easy movie to watch. It's kind of nice. It's funny. But then recently I watched Die Hard 2. 
And, you know, movies, when they go to sequels, usually everything gets worse. You get tired. And I thought Die Hard 2 was really good. It's yeah. rated R. And what I forgot is, because I don't, I don't ever look at ratings anymore. Yeah. And we don't have to. Because you're old enough. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> we're old enough now. But it being rated R, like, it was a rated R movie. There were swear words. There was blood. There was violence. There was shooting. Like, they took advantage of the fact that it was rated R. And it was kind of, it was kind of nice to see an action movie that didn't have to sugarcoat yeah. everything. Like, it could just really show the action. So I actually really like Die Hard too, I, and now I need to continue and, and continue watching the the series. But that's where I'm at right now is I'm trying to watch movies or shows that are like from back in the day that I never had a chance to watch. Okay, that's interesting. Like I, honestly, I am going to watch The Godfather Three because I'm like I've watched the first two. I should just watch the last one. Definitely. So in terms of my recommendations, I have two different ones. One is something to watch, and the other thing I'm going to talk about an update on something. So the first one that you should watch is Your Honor. What's that? It's I haven't a, heard it's, of this. Oh, you haven't? So it's a new show on HBO. And it's got Brian Cranston in it from Breaking Bad, which I know Breaking you really Bad, you, okay. you really liked. The show yeah. is really really good. I'm I think I'm five episodes. There's only been five episodes so far, so I'm five episodes in. It's a, is it like actively airing right now? Yeah, it's like I think it's also a mini series. I think, but I'm not sure. So it's actively airing right now. It comes out on every Sunday. It's really really good so far. Um, so he plays a judge, and not to say too much. His son is involved in a hit and run, and then like there's a cover up, but it's it's just yeah. really really good. You have to watch. This it. sounds really good, and he's a really good actor. Oh, he's awesome. He's awesome. This so that, segment has become Oscar. Tell me what I'm going to watch over the next month. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is something I think you'll really like. And so far, I can't tell you the ending's going to be because I haven't seen it. Right, like it's still actively yeah. going. So up until now, amazing. After the undoing, I might wait. Yeah, that's if why. If you tell me that's it was why. great and then the ending sucked, then I might not watch exactly. it. Exactly. So but we'll see. We'll see what you say. And then my second update is, so a recommendation is, we just got a Peloton, or I just got a Peloton. Oh, oh <laughs> you're so lucky. And so I just got it, and I've had it for a week now. And oh it's so far, you know, you're like, you see it, and like, oh, is, is, ever, is huh? it actually good? Like, are you going to use it? Is it overhyped? I can say so far, one week in, it's not overhyped. It's It's awesome. the greatest thing ever, I bet. It's awesome. It, it took me from like, since the pandemic and we've been back in a lockdown here in Ontario, so our gym's closed. I've been really lazy and I started to get out of shape after I started getting back into shape. So it's a bit depressing. You're like, oh, all the changes you made. As soon as this yeah. bike came back in, back to working out. And like, I, I am looking forward to working out, which is like a different thing. It's not like I'm just doing it. I'm like, okay, I got to go on the bike. Like I want to go on the bike. So, so yeah. far, definitely, definitely recommend the Peloton. You'll be waiting eight months to get one, but like definitely yeah, recommend the, the- it. The demand during the pandemic for Peloton is insane. Insane, yeah. It's just, you know, skyrocketed. Now, what I will say about the Peloton is because I'm someone that, I like spinning classes and and I love energetic ones that kind of motivate you to keep working out. And as I said, I usually listen to electronic music and Peloton has a lot of great like music yeah. and remixes and stuff like that um, and makes it entertaining. I have used them before. It is like the greatest invention ever. I currently am not able to convince my wife to let me buy one. <laughs> <laughs> due to the price point yeah. so i'm still kind of just you know at home praying every day that someone will get me one as a gift and that way my wife can't complain that i bought it so any listeners out there you got some spare change just send a peloton to me and i will, I will graciously accept that so to be like a, a peloton spokesperson right now the good thing is is right now you can finance it for zero percent oh so it's like it's like free loan kind of thing exactly so you're just paying a monthly fee so it's like a gym fee that you're paying to have your own bike yeah yeah yeah, and the and the thing I will say is about the Peloton is although they're, they're expensive, I have never met a single person that has one that regrets the purchase. No, like I I actually have not met one person because a bunch of the staff here also got them recently, and they love it. Yeah, they use it all the time. It, it motivates you to work out. It, it's in your house, so you can just get on it, get off. Like 
It's great. Yeah. I'm, I'm super jealous, man. That's awesome. Peloton, if you want to sponsor us, let us know. We're um, open. I can give mine back and take a new one. I'm okay with that. I was going to say, yeah. If you're in the warranty, you can get a refund and just get a new one from them. Exactly. Still got, that'd be, that'd still be got a nice three sponsorship. Weeks. Yeah. <laughs> you still got three weeks. Yeah. So <laughs> hit us up, Peloton, <laughs> if you want to give us a sponsorship. All right, Oscar, that concludes uh, this episode. We have some exciting guests lined up for 2021. We want to keep the podcast rolling. And, and every other episode, we like to bring on someone to talk about a topic. So definitely, if you'd like to be a guest on the show, or if you can nominate someone or think of someone you'd like to hear from or someone that'd be great, we love hearing from our listeners. You can email us at teethandtitaniumomfs at gmail.com. What's nice is almost every episode now, we're getting a few emails just from listeners yeah. or suggestions or feedback. So honestly, that's my favorite part is, is hearing from the listeners. So even if you just want to say thanks or you enjoyed an episode or, or, or you want to hear about something specifically, just let us know. Or even uh, if you want things changed, you want to criticize. We're happy to hear yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we're happy to hear feedback or anything you think we can improve. Teeth and titanium, OMFS at gmail.com. That's it for our January episode, and we will see you guys next time. Take care, guys.